So over the years, there have been some truly amazing partnerships, okay? This first slide is one of my favorite. The Italian Stallion should be coming up soon here. There you go, the anticipation. Rocky Balboa and Mickey. Now look, Mickey trains Rocky, of course, in the first movie to fight Apollo Creed. And although he doesn't win the fight, he takes the champ to the distance and loses in a split decision. And he gets his second chance in the second movie, and he finally knocks him out, right? This is a great example of a partnership. Neither one could win without the other. And then we have Mr. Miyagi and Daniel LaRusso, right? And together they win the All-Valley Tournament. And this has seen a resurgence with Cobra Kai. What I love about this is you have a sensei and his student. And not only is he teaching him how to fight, but he's teaching him how to live. And he has some very unorthodox ways of teaching, which if you've ever seen anything about it, you've seen it. There you go. I see some movements in the back, right? You're going to wash the car, you know, paint the fence, right? But he's sharing his life with him. Then we have my personal favorite, Mr. Phil Jackson of the 11 rings, too many championships to have fingers for. He's got to use a big toe. Six with Michael Jordan and five with the late, great Kobe Bryant. Without each other, these people don't win. Michael doesn't win without Phil. Kobe doesn't win without Phil. But Phil doesn't win without Michael or Kobe. That's what a partnership looks like. It's people coming into community with each other to accomplish something greater than themselves. And one of the greatest partnerships of all time is Paul and Timothy, who we've been talking about for quite a while, right? We went through all through 1 Timothy, now we're in 2 Timothy, and we're getting near the end of this letter, and today we're going to see some stuff in this letter where you can see that Paul is getting ready to pass the torch. But a good mentor, a good teacher is important, and every one of these people that we saw up on the screen had one. You have to have somebody mentoring you or teaching you in order to learn how to do it with somebody else. And you have to be great at taking instruction if you're going to be good at giving instruction. Right? You have to be a great disciple if you want to be a good disciple maker. There's a requirement there. So I had an experience in high school with not so good coach slash mentor. So you guys may or may not know this about me, but for a long part of my life, I wanted to play in the NFL. That was my goal. I started playing football in third grade, and it was something I was actually good at and something I enjoyed, and I worked really, really hard. And when I was in uh, eighth grade, during, uh, we were playing, actually, uh, during recess, we were playing tag football, and I broke my foot, my right foot. So it healed and all that, and I get to the two-a-days, the real two-a-days freshman year, right, where you actually had to do, you know, an eight-hour day of practice out in the heat, no matter how hot it was, in full pads. And I went through all that. We played some preseason games, and then I had to go get my yearly physical, and the doctor said, hey, you can't play this season. Your foot didn't heal right. I'm like, what do you mean I can't play? I've been playing for the last two months. I can play. He said, no, we can't let you. There's a liability there. And so my season was over. This is the first year since third grade I didn't get to play. I was pretty discouraged. And during the um, winter break of that year, we moved from Antioch, go see Quoits, down to Mountain Home, Arkansas. And 
I was really psyched for sophomore year. I'm like, man, I'm going to get to play. We were bombers. And I was like, man, I'm going to go out there and play. And I got to play some JV sophomore year. But something happened during sophomore year that really changed a lot of what was going to happen to come. And part of that was one day I got into the locker room after practice and about three or four guys were waiting in ambush and they wanted to cut my hair. So they had the clipper out and I was fighting them back. We got into this big brawl in the locker room and it was not pretty. Thankfully I had a helmet with me. Um, But what that led to was my mom coming and yelling at the coach and that did not turn out well for me. Uh, I think she was police escorted out. She's a short Italian woman sitting right here. And um, it didn't turn out well for me because what happened as a result of that is I did not get to play a single play my junior year. Coach didn't like me. Small town, small town politics. He didn't want, he didn't like my mom, he didn't like me. And even though I was clearly better than the person playing in front of me, I didn't get to play. And it's not like we were winning, guys. We would lose by 60 points. We were playing all these Little Rock teams, it's, and I got to go sit on the bus, ride for four and a half hours, watch my team get annihilated while I can do nothing, and ride all the way back home four and a half hours. I went to every practice, every game, did not see a single second of playing time. So my senior year comes, and in between, I'm like stoked. So in the summer, I didn't have a car until I was like a sophomore in college. So back then, I had my little uh, GT Dyno 20-inch and I would ride it about seven miles to my school during summer workouts, go work out for about three hours and ride it home. And during that summer, I gained 45 pounds and lost three inches in my stomach. So I was 205 going into my senior year, benching about 475, squatting about 550, ready to play. But I wanted to play football in college. And that's actually why I live here, because I went to Missouri State and they said I would have an opportunity to play. It was SMS back then. But... I wanted to play football in college, and I knew I couldn't play on the line in college at 205. I was starting to see that in high school because I'm playing against guys that weigh 350 pounds. There's only so much you can do at 200 pounds to push somebody that weighs 350 pounds. That's why I had to get really strong. But I said, nope, I'm going to practice with the linebackers because that's the only other position I ever played. Eighth grade, I played both sides. I started at center and left outside linebacker. We won a championship, went undefeated, my greatest season. But... I said, okay, I'm going to play this because I know in college I can't play on the line. So I practiced all summer, come into the first game of the season. I'm starting varsity. He says, but you're going to have to play on the line because we have too many linebackers. He said, fine. Little did I know what I was agreeing to because he put me at right guard. I don't know how much you know about football, but I have never played guard in my life. I was a center. I snapped the ball. It was a really easy blocking assignment. Either there's a linebacker or a nose tackle or you pull. That's it. These guards, they got to go all different directions. I had no idea what I was doing. And so as a result, I looked very, very foolish. And by the end of the next week, after having to do that a second time in a row, while a junior was starting my position, I quit playing football. After all that time, after all that uh, passion, after all that I wanted to do, I gave it up because of a poor mentor, a poor coach who didn't do their job very well. What I love about the passage today is we see one of the greatest mentors of all time and the Apostle Paul. And because of his life and his faithfulness, we see the fruit it bore in Timothy's life and in so many others. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1. 
Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. And this is a profound statement about the reality of spiritual training or discipleship. There is only one example, and that's the example of Christ. There is no other example. I don't care if it was your grandma, your great-grandma, your best friend, your aunt, your uncle, your cousin, who led you to Christ or helped lead you to Christ. The only example we ought to be following is the example of Christ. Now, it's not wrong to follow someone as they are paving a way or clearing a path. There are paths that need to be taken. Throughout my life, especially spiritually, there's been so many times when I wish there would have been that person at that next level for me to look to, to be mentored, and instead, we had to do it ourselves and create that path for other people. But at every step of the way, it's about following the example of Jesus. So whether you're directly following it or you're following somebody who is following it, the only example to be followed in spiritual training is Jesus. And that's what it means to be a disciple, to follow Christ, to be a follower of Christ. And we explained, we think about discipleship here at Glendale Christian Church in this way. Our vision is to become father-willed, Christ-compelled, spirit-led disciples. That's the vision. And we certainly know this to be true about Paul. Since his example is Christ, this makes him father-willed for two reasons. John 10.30 says this, I and the Father are one. That means if he's pursuing Jesus and what Jesus wants, then he's pursuing the Father, right? Because they're one. They don't have a different desire or a different uh, motive. The Father and the Son are one, and therefore to follow Christ is to be following the will of the Father. John uh, 6.38 says, I have come down to do the will of him who sent me. See, one of the things Jesus did by becoming human is to set aside his privilege as God and submit, even though he's co-equal with the Father, to the will of the Father. To follow Christ means to be Father-willed because setting the example, Christ followed the will of the Father. But Paul's also Christ-compelled. Paul tells us in Philippians 3, 8 through 10, he considers everything a loss uh, compared to the worth of knowing Christ, his Lord, and furthermore, he considers everything that came before in his life garbage in comparison to having gained Christ and being found in him, this leads him to declaring, I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participate in his sufferings. He wants to know Christ. His heart is chasing after, or he is compelled by this love that he has for Christ and by the love Christ had for him. Because after all, he met Christ in a very unique way, right? On the road to Damascus, as he was bent on destroying the fledgling church, Jesus had mercy on him and blinded him. And he revealed himself to him, and Paul, from then on, became a man who was compelled by the love of Christ. And he'll say things like, um, I'll become all things to all men in the hopes that I might save some, but in the middle there, sometimes we forget what he says, for the sake of the gospel. It's not for the sake of saving people, it's for the sake of the gospel itself. He loves Jesus so much, he would endure anything, even participate in his suffering to know him more. Finally, we know Paul's spirit-led. He tells us in Galatians 5.25, since we live by the spirit, let us keep in step with the spirit. You see that word we there? That means he's including himself, right? That's what it means. You and I, we live by the spirit. We know he's led by the spirit. 
To be a disciple of Christ, to be somebody who's following the example of Christ, you must be father-willed, Christ-compelled, and spirit-led. That is the only definition that works as a disciple. Otherwise, you are not truly a disciple of Jesus because this is how Jesus lived, this is how Paul lived, this is how Peter lived, this is how the people that have come after, that have forged the way, that have kept the flame going through the collaboration with the Holy Spirit, have lived. It's this man, Paul, who's instructing Timothy in our passage today. We see this great teacher, mentor, disciple maker give some very specific instruction to Timothy in preparation for his death. Paul knows it's almost over. He's going to get into the next chapter talking about, I fought the good fight, right? He's been pouring himself out like a drink offering. Paul knows the end is imminent, and he wants to leave Timothy with some encouragement and instruction. So if you want to, you can turn with me to 2 Timothy 3 verses 10 through 17, or you can follow along on the screen. It may be slightly different worded there because I have the real NIV here. Um, You, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions, sufferings, and what kinds of things happened to me at Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, the persecutions I endured, and yet the Lord rescued me from them all. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil men and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue what you have learned and become convinced of because you know those whom you've learned it from and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So if you notice, he starts in verses uh, 10 through 11. He gives a list of things he has shared with Timothy. Let's pop that up real quick. These are the things that Paul reminds Timothy that he shared with him that Timothy knows about him. The first is teaching. Timothy knows what Paul has taught. He understands the teachings. He, he's seen the way of life Paul has, the life that Paul has led, the giving himself away life that led him from town to town, village to village, place to place, preaching the gospel, whether in chains or not, whether being beaten, whether being shamed, whether being um, treated poorly, whether being poor or having something to eat or starving. He's seen this way of life. He understands Paul's purpose. Because Paul has a purpose, and his purpose is to grow the kingdom of God for the glory of God because of the love he has for the Son, for the sake of the gospel. He knows his faith. He knows who Paul puts his faith in. He's seen how patient Paul can be. He's seen the love that Paul has for God and for other people. He's seen the endurance. He's seen the persecution and the suffering. In fact, if you think about uh, what he says there at the end, you know what happened in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra. In Acts 14, 8 through 10, Paul's healing a man who was lame from birth, and the Jewish leaders have him stoned and leave him outside the village to die. And what does Paul do? He crawls back in and begins to preach the gospel again. Timothy knows everything there is to know about the Apostle Paul. He has not held anything back from them. 
And that's important. In our culture today, some might say having that type of relationship with somebody uh, is not wise or it's unethical. But the reality is a great disciple maker or a good disciple maker is going to share their life, the good and the bad, the triumphs and the tragedies, with those they're discipling. That's what it looks like. And these are all areas you can begin to look at and say, have I taught that with somebody? Am I sharing that with somebody? Maybe I'm good at this, but could I be better at that? I had somebody after first service say, you know, a lot of that stuff, really easy. You know, the hard thing for me is patience, which doesn't make me a great teacher or mentor, right? Because I have a hard time with that. But what Paul's reminding Timothy of is, you know who I am. You know what I believe in. You know how I've lived. And what is he trying to do? He's trying to instill some confidence. But he's also echoing something Jesus says in John 15, 15 to the disciples. He says, I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything I have learned from my father, I have made known to you. There's this moment in Jesus' ministry where he's no longer looking at himself in the sense of it's them and me, now it's us and we're co-laboring together on the same level. This happened in the early church. At first it was the apostles and then the elders of the church at the time became co-equal with the apostles. This is what discipleship looks like. Jesus raised up these men and taught them everything. He held nothing back from them and they became his friends. And this is important because I wonder if many of you can say you have people like this in your life when it comes to spiritual matters. Now, you may be able to say this as a parent, be able to say this as an employee or as somebody that has coached or done something like that, but in regards or with regards to spiritual things, have you been a Paul in somebody's life? Because that's the calling, right? The calling is to be a Paul because how can you make disciples if you're not the Paul? You're not making a disciple by being Timothy. You're not making a disciple by being a Barnabas or a Jonathan, you know, somebody who's a peer in the same place as you are. You have to be a Paul or a Paulina in somebody's life in order to make disciples. But he goes on to say in verses 12 through 14, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted while evil men and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived, But you, as for you, continue in what you have learned and become convicted of because of the people whom you learned it from. So at the end of that, he says, but the Lord rescued me. But the Lord rescued me at the end of the previous verse. And then he says, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. Think about that for a minute. If a prerequisite of wanting to live a godly life in Christ is persecution, then it stands to reason that the lack of persecution might represent a lack of desire or pursuit of a godly life. Fair? If a prerequisite of living a godly life is persecution, Following Jesus is persecution. He says everyone. He doesn't say some people. He doesn't say me and you. He says everyone who will live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. This is a definitive statement. 
if you are not being persecuted for your faith in Christ, maybe you're not pursuing a godly life in Christ the way you ought to be. Stands to reason. That's logic, basic logic. If so, and so the question today you have to think about with regards to your faith walk is, am I being persecuted for my faith? I reckon for most of us, we could stand to do a little bit better in this area. I reckon for most of us, we could stand to do a little bit better in this area. Then Paul gives this comparison. On one side, we have the evildoers going from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived, and then the calling to the disciple of Christ, Timothy, to continue in what you have learned and become convinced of or convicted of because of those whom you learned it from. He had his grandmother, his mother, and Paul pouring into him. He said, stay where you're at. Don't be like everyone else who goes from bad to worse, being deceived and deceiving people. Stay where you are. Stay in the truth. Because you can trust the reliability of those who you've learned it from. Paul's resume spoke for itself. He's letting Timothy know there's going to be bad days ahead. There's going to be lonely times coming. I want you to stand firm because you know who you learned this from. If you start to doubt yourself, don't doubt them. Don't doubt your mom. Don't doubt your grandmother. Don't doubt me. You know my way of life. You know what I've pursued. I've shared everything with you. You know this is the real deal. Even when you doubt, stay convinced and set firm because of me. That's what he's telling them. He knows he's going to leave, and it's going to be hard for Timothy without a Paul there to write him these letters, to encourage him, to exhort him. That is what we ought to be preparing everybody for because we don't know when we're gonna take our last breath. Are the people you're closest to prepared for you to be gone? If they're not, then you got some work to do. If the people you're closest to aren't prepared for you to be gone, then you got some work to do because you shouldn't have them dependent on you for their faith. They should have their own faith and they should see how you live in such a way that it even gives them strength on those tough days. In verse 15, he says, And how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through your faith in Christ. See, Paul is reminding Timothy of his instruction in the Word of God since birth. Paul references the salvation and wisdom that comes through the Holy Scriptures by faith in Christ. This, this verse resonates with me a lot because it wasn't through somebody's good preaching, it wasn't through somebody's good testimony that I was converted. It was reading this exact Bible, which is why it has a cover now, because it's falling apart, that I came to my faith in Christ. These scriptures have the capacity to give wisdom that leads by faith unto salvation. And this is justification, right? Our knowledge of Jesus and our belief in that knowledge of Jesus gives us salvation. Jesus says, this is eternal life that you know the one and only God and the one whom he sent. This is eternal life that you know, that you have a knowledge of. That is what salvation is, to know God and to have put your faith in God. And the scriptures are the way to know God. Yes, you may have been led differently by someone else walking you through the scriptures, but the scriptures possess the capacity in and of themselves to give you the knowledge of salvation. And for that, we should have an amen because God chose to give us that. And it shouldn't be a surprise because we call it the word of God. 
And Jesus himself is called the word of God. These are God's very words. In fact, we're going to get there. Starting in verse 16, it says this. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped in every good work. And yes, this version says the man of God, not the servant, because that's how it was written. Um, all scripture is God-breathed. This is the only time in scripture we see this word. And in the Greek, it takes two words and puts them together. Theos, meaning God, and pneumo, meaning to breathe out, creating a word which literally means God-breathed. And what's beautiful about God-breathing is our story kind of starts with God-breathing, right? Do you remember? God creates Adam out of the ground, and then he does what? Breathes life into him. They use a lot of analogy with the Holy Spirit, like breath, right? God is synonymous with this idea. So we're talking about God breathing. We're talking about the Holy Spirit breathing life into the world through the writers that he inspired to write the scriptures. These are God's words, not man's, which should bring a greater sense of vindication to those who truly accept that this is God's word. And this is important because in 1 Corinthians 2.14, Paul writes this, the person without the spirit does not accept things that come from the spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the spirit. Andrew referenced this last week even, which was really cool because I had already written the sermon. I was like, yes, God's working. And he gives us the mind of Christ. But I'll tell you this, it is impossible for someone to read this and discern it without the Holy Spirit. I don't care how good of a reading level you are. I don't care how great you can read. I don't care how much you think you understand the words on the page. You don't know what this is saying unless you have the Holy Spirit interpreting it. Do not lean on your own understanding. It is impossible that God-breathed words can be understood without spiritual discernment, which can only come from the Spirit of God who wrote the Scriptures, which is why I firmly believe so many people can read these God-breathed words and never discern their meaning. And you look at me like, how do, you, how do you get that from what you just read there? How could you read that? That's not what it says. Because they don't have the discernment that comes with the Spirit. Because they're not truly coming to the text to submit themselves to it. They want to be master over it. That's our culture. We want to master things. We want to read it and exhaust it until we become the master. How could you ever become the master of the word of God, which is living and active? You can't. There's a certain level of humility you have to come to the word of God with that most of us don't possess. Because humility is far from our culture. And so we come after it even, and that's all the arguments in church are about really smart people overreading it and not discerning it. And so they get into fights and arguments and they move away from things that are core and important because it's all about them and not about God. But it says the scripture can do four things, and I want to hit on these real quick. The first thing it says that it's useful for is teaching or instruction, and the concept here in the Greek is the teaching of doctrine that leads to a proper lifestyle. So if you go look this word up in the Greek, it has to do with teaching doctrine that leads to a proper lifestyle. Now, I think for most of us, we get that. Like most people read the Bible like, yeah, this is how I'm supposed to live my life. I should turn the other cheek. I should love my neighbor as myself. I should do the, like this doctrine that leads to a lifestyle change. So this isn't a foreign thing, but this is one of the things that the scriptures can do. The second thing is rebuke or reproof. 
The concept in the Greek here is tied to inner conviction that comes through the testing of our faith through the study of the word. And it's the same word that's used in Hebrews 11.1 when defining faith, where it says assurance or conviction. The idea here is as you wrestle with the scriptures, there's inner conviction that brings true faith through the testing. And what I find here is I think a lot of people don't really use scripture for this. What do I mean? What I mean is when you're wrestling through the scripture and you don't like what it has to say, you change what it means. You don't let your faith be tested. Well, it can't say that because that's not my view of God. God is a loving God. How could he be a God that also is a God of wrath, who's an all-consuming fire? That doesn't jive with being a loving, forgiving, merciful God. Oh, yes, it does. That's what scripture says. What are you putting your faith in? Your idea of who God is and what you want, or are you putting your faith in the scripture? It leads to inner conviction that would change and test your faith, because some of this stuff is hard. How many times did Jesus teach the crowd and people walked away because they said the teaching was too hard? That is another thing that scripture can do, and I wonder how much you exercise that in your life. How much do you let scripture rebuke or reproof you in your life? How often do you go to the word of God and let the word of God kick you in the butt and not say, oh, yeah, I must not understand it right because God couldn't possibly mean that. No, God means that. That's what he means. When he says uh, in verse 17, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped, he didn't mean so that the servant of God, he meant so that the man of God because it was inferred that if it was the man, then it would also lead to the women and the children. But in God's headship, in the way he created, he put men in the scripture for a reason. But we don't like that. That's not inclusive enough. So let's change what it says. It's a little change. We can understand the sentiment. But do you see how insidious this idea is? You don't like it, so you change it. It's also useful for correcting. The concept here in the Greek is to reform by setting something straight or to restore to an upright thing. There's so much in the world that has gotten turned upside down, that's crooked, that's going down this windy path. Scripture will allow you to redirect your course so that you're on a straight course moving forward. That's one of the things that it adds. It's correction. Do you want correction? Well, the Word of God has correction. Do you want it? Or do you want to keep losing the same fight over and over and over again and keep living year after year the same way? We have to take correction like anything else in life, if you're trying to do something, if you keep doing something, you keep getting the same result, what do we call that? Being insane, right? How many people are doing that with their spiritual life? Keep doing the same thing and keep having the same result. Maybe let the scripture inform and correct. And finally, it says it can train or discipline you. And this one I love because here at uh, Glendale Christian Church, this year is all about discipline, right? How many of you guys have gotten your packets from the hub or that were on your chair and actually followed through with filling it out. Your spiritual health assessment, your spiritual growth plan. How many people by a raise of hands, we're gonna do this in front of everybody, have actually started to do a, seri uh, a spiritual growth plan? Not bad, we're at about 20%. How about my goal, my goal by the end of the month is that 100% of you would take your spiritual growth seriously. More seriously than your job, more seriously than your spouse, more seriously than your financial accounting, why don't you take your spiritual training seriously if you want to grow? Like we put that stuff together so that you would have an opportunity to grow. 
so that you don't keep losing the same battles so that you can bear more fruit for the kingdom. Because after all, we know from Ephesians 2.10 that you weren't merely saved to be saved. You were saved because God had work prepared in advance for you to do. And you're not gonna do the work unless you grow in your Christ-likeness, which is sanctification. We're not talking about justification. I know that we're justified by faith. I don't care about that. Great, you're justified by faith, meaning you're rendered innocent. You're not gonna pay the penalty. How about you grow in not suffering from the power of sin in your life? How about you grow and not let sin keep you in slavery? That's what we're about. Like, if we all get on board with this, this church is going to be bursting at the seams. And I don't even care about the numbers. I care about the souls that God wants to use us to go find. Because there are people dying and going to hell because they haven't heard the gospel. And God's people should care about that. In fact, that was one of the goals, my third goal on my um, thing last month is I wanted to have an increased heart for the loss and focus on evangelism. And that was part of my goal. And one of my tasks even in that was to fast for it. And because God is faithful, he came through like he always does. And that's how I was able to have three different conversations with three different people that led to people putting their faith in Jesus and two of them getting baptized into Christ. And one of them is sitting right here in the second row. He's joined the church. That's all God because I took my call from him seriously and did this. I promise you this will work. That spiritual health assessment is a hybrid of something me and Andrew put together and what we found from uh, the Purpose Driven Life people, okay? And that spiritual growth plan, I created, I changed the wording, but I took a written service agreement. is a tool I used when I worked for the Children's Division in Greene County. I had 652 families, and my job over my course of five and a half years was to help those families stay together before the kids got removed, Okay, before they got removed, not after. And I only had 21 families who lost their children during that process by the grace of God. And you know what our primary tool was? That little spiritual growth plan thing? It works. Do it. Do it. Just do it. You know, one of the things that I want to encourage you, in my 13 years of being a professional counselor, the number one thing that holds people back is they just don't do it. They just don't do what they're supposed to do. They want me to come and give them a magic pill and tell them, no, it's called do what you know you ought to do. And the beauty in spiritual life is you don't even have to do it on your own power because you have the power of God within you to do it. Yield to him, grow, and this time next year it will be a totally different thing. So my encouragement to everyone here and my exhortation to everyone here is God wants to be in partnership with you. We want to be in partnership with you. You ought to be in partnership with one another because there's a greater war being fought. There's a greater battle being waged over people's souls. Do you care enough to get involved or do you care just enough so that you're safe? So that you're saved? Because every single person who wants to live a godly life in Jesus Christ will be persecuted. Are you ready for it? Because you know what's gonna make you ready for it? Training. You don't get out on the battlefield without training. They want your reaction to become what you would have done if you had an opportunity to respond. That's the whole point. You should be respond, reacting like Christ would respond. So that if you could think it through, this is the way you would handle it. Let's grow together. We're all in it together. I'm doing this thing. I know Andrew's doing this thing. I know Clay's doing this thing. I saw a lot of hands out here. 
we're doing this together. I'm preaching to the choir. We all have to grow, but I want to implore you on God's behalf, stop sitting on the sidelines and get in the game. Let's partner together. Let's see what God can do in this city through our hard work. Will you pray with me?